Hello everyone, Anne Cross here in the urban yurt in East London. Excited to be here with my regular podcast, Conversations of Spirituality in the Urban Yurt, where I invite guests into the yurt to have conversations with me on matters of the heart. We hear so much these days about our society becoming less religious and the statistics certainly prove that with more and more people actually self-defining as the religious nons. But my experience is actually that people are no less spiritual. In fact, they're taking responsibility for their own spirituality, for their own sense of that which is beyond the physical realm. Um, Sometimes remaining within a faith organisation, often not, but finding myriad ways to explore, to celebrate, to define their own spiritual path. And today I have with me Shona Pollock, who is a teacher in Redbridge, a resident in Newham, and a local Labour Party activist, as well as being a mother to Neisner, who is also with us here in the year today. So we might persuade her to join our conversation as well. Oh. <laughs> but we'll see how we go with that. But Shona, welcome. Yeah. Welcome <laughs> to really, myself. Really, really good to no, have you here. It's such an amazing space, and I feel very privileged and very honoured to have been invited to this series of illustrious podcasts. Um, I have predecessors that I know, like Jessie Brett, so I feel like I'm in good company. It's really really good. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, So maybe just to kind of start us off, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I mean, particularly kind of your faith background, Ooh. you know, kind of where do you come from? Are you, are you local to New yeah. Let's Tell us a little bit about yourself. In order yourself. to answer this, I really do need to go back into my family's history yeah. because we all have very important issues around identity and quite often our faith is cultural. Mm. And without even knowing it, we're born into a faith culture. So my family is a colonial family. And that is a word that has become maligned. But for me, it means that I'm mixed race. Mm -hmm. And that coalesces around a British identity because my mother is from Zimbabwe. She's a black Zimbabwean born in Salisbury, Rhodesia, now Harare, Zimbabwe. And my father was a child of the empire in the sense that he was born to two people in the British army who were then billeted right after the war to Hong Kong. So although he's of white Irish extraction, he tells me he never saw a white face apart from his own mother until he was about 11. And when he was sent to boarding school in Surrey, it was a profound shock to realise that he was actually English white and all of these things that the empire bestows on you. So the fact that he then at age 17 met my mother, a black woman, in uh, Guildford, Surrey in 1966, 67, was really an expression of a burgeoning kind of multicultural society. But the thing that they both had in common was that they both came from families who had excelled within their religions. So my... my Excelled within their religions. (laughs) I'm... I'm... (laughs) I'm so intrigued so, uh, to hear how that, how that... It. So, you, I mean, it's kind of bizarre. It's like family legends, but my, uh, my grandmother's uh, 
my grandmother's uncle was Geoffrey Parker, who was the Archbishop of Cape Town mm -hmm. in the Anglican Church. <clears throat> and my mother's father, my Sukuru, my African granddad, was the first African to be chosen to attend St. John's Seminary, which is the same one that Nelson Mandela went to, and then ended up in the uh, seminary at Katame, and back to be a priest in Chishawasha, which is our, our ancestral home of the Shona people, that's why I'm called Shona, in Zimbabwe. Um, and like many Catholics, he found the vow of celibacy quite hard to keep. And so by the time he was 23, 24, he had left the seminary. However, um, growing up in Rhodesia as a young black man, an intelligent young black man, the best way to get an education was through the Jesuits. Um, so we have this big link to the Jesuit order in my family. And coincidentally, even on the Anglican side, we had some high Anglicans who converted to Catholicism and were very keen to tell me when I was growing up that we are Anglo-Catholics. And so I put myself, if I had to put a stamp on the kind of Christianity I practice, I would say I'm an Anglo-Catholic. Yeah. So, so the way you've unfolded it, to excel in religion <laughs> is to reach the status yes. of ordained, <laughs> yes. um, ordained clergy yeah. within the Jesuits or within uh, an order. Oh, I, I suppose I should say that there is more to the story, which is that both of my parents, of course, totally rejected okay. religion. And all my religiosity is disapproved of by my father, who is a Marxist, and covertly encouraged by my mother, who, as an African woman, is a great lover of Jesus. So I have this kind of, you know, lovely banter with the members of my family about the fact that I am, within my nuclear family, me and my daughter are the only practising Christians. Um, okay, so uh, your childhood, it sounds, it sounds really an, quite an exciting place mm. to be. So you've got all these examples of um, um, ancestors who yeah. excelled in their Christian religion, mm -hmm. went to seminaries, and parents who were a bit kind of maybe not so yeah. involved in religion. So as a child, were you, did you have a, a experience in church? I mean, did you go along to church? Well, I mean, I was... Sunday school? Yeah. Education? Was that a religious education? Yes. To some extent, yes. But, mm. I mean, to another extent, I would say, as a child of the 70s and 80s, that was when organised religion was really breaking down. I mean, mm. sociologists talk about the permissive society. Mm. So, for example, there was a dispute about whether I should be christened because, you know, that's no longer needed. Whereas my, you know, predecessors and going back into the Cockney family of my daughter, you know, you had to be churched. Mm. Women had to go to church as the first place they went to after they left the house. Otherwise, you know... To be cleansed. Yes, some ghastly fate would befall them as mm. fallen women because having a child in itself, you know. Um, and, you know, that's her family's background, Cockney culture, um, my daughter's. But I guess what I'm kind of saying is that by the time I was born, I think the traditions had dissembled. 
and fallen apart. And my parents being kind of 60s socialists, student activists, radicals, kicked against every tradition mm. as a knee-jerk reaction. And whilst I appreciate that that was entirely necessary to move society on from the dogmas of organised religion, I think I have the privilege, as somebody who is in her 40s, of being quite postmodern about religion and being able to say, you know what, some of the traditions feel really beautiful to me. And so my grandparents taking me to Midnight Mass, uh, my love of Lent, <laughs> weird, giving things up, but I love Pancake Day. <laughs> Um, and my love of the liturgy comes from very much loving my grandparents and loving the sort of routine in which they lived their life through a litur liturgical seasonal cycle of celebration. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely yeah? know what you mean, yeah. and I love that. And I just mm -hmm. want to stay with that a minute to just kind of, kind of, yeah, hear again what you've said, mm. because you're, you're saying that for you, the ritual, the liturgy, mm. the the rhythm of the church, mm. the rhythm of prayer, all that is very much bound up with a sense of um, who your grandparents were, how they lived their lives. Um, and that has a resonance for you that mm. almost goes deeper. Yeah. Well, certainly, it's not. It, it's not some. It's not a head thing. That's it. Yeah, feels it's, very it's, much yeah. a heart movement. Yeah. It's um, it's a family. It's a familial, family, cultural, and bearing in mind, of course, that my culture is mixed, mm. but it is a universal endowment that I think all Christians whether you're Baptist, Methodist, it's a touchstone. Mm. We can all say this is the day mm. when the star was in the sky, or this is the day Christ is risen. I'm getting quite emotional. And it's just a, it is, it's a common emotion around a child being born, mm. a saviour, and the fact that at times in our life we all need to be saved, I think. Mm. Um, and certainly my relationship with my grandparents on a practical level saved me in terms of mitigating you know my adolescent struggles with my parents and their ideological dogmas my dad is a scientist you know uh, went to university in the era of social science and science can cure everything if there's an issue you need to go out and collect data subject it to a priori you know experimental paradigms and there will be a conclusion for your dissertation on whatever the social problem is but for me there is something about good and evil, something metaphysical, which cannot simply be subjected to scientific, physical experimentation. Do you know what I mean? I'm sounding hugely pretentious. I can't quite believe I'm You're saying You're not sounding pretentious stuff. at all. But, um, it's important to me to say that I don't reject science, but I see its limitations. In my own heart, I've always felt that it has limitations. Can I just take you back to something you said a couple of minutes ago about being saved? You just said, we all need saving at mm. times. Can I just check out what, what you mean by being saved? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think that like a lot of women, we have a lot of negative influences from the media, um, from ourselves, but generally the culture post sort of the sexual revolution has been to sexualise us. I feel very close to my Muslim girlfriends in Newham in wanting to reject some of that. 
you know, that's where kind of the hijab stuff we've been talking about comes in. And actually, I did struggle a lot with finding, you know, a sexual partner in my 20s and 30s and had huge difficulties around forming relationships, marriage, childbirth, that kind of thing. I always felt through all my struggles in trying to find the right man that there was a man that I could rely on. Yeah, I don't actually believe, you know, that God is a man, but I felt very much that there was a higher power helping me to be a woman mm-hmm. who can be frail, who can be discriminated against, who can struggle, who can give birth, you know. Mm. All of those things are risks Mm. and we need to be guided through that. So the higher power that I feel in, you know, my life so many times has come to me in moments of need and kind of gone, come on girl, you can do this, you can get through this. So sometimes, I mean, because sometimes when a Christian says, I want to be saved or I have been saved... Um, there might be an understanding that that is saved from sin or saved from original sin or saved from... (laughs) But actually what I hear you saying is that you see the higher power or God, Mm. the divine, being the one who is a higher power and holds you in your power. Yeah. In your power as a woman, as a mother, Mm. as a... Um, you are you see um, uh, uh, you see uh, a, a need for you to be held by a higher power. Yeah, I mean, I teach in a Catholic school, and I'm very aware that original sin is an important part of their orthodoxy. And you know, it's something that, to some extent, I've grown up with because my mother is a Catholic and has Catholic guilt in all its, you know. Sweet little manifestations. And actually, I was born in Ireland, so I kind of really do know how sin was used in that culture in order to control and create a theocracy. Um, In terms of sin, I mean, I went to a christening in a Catholic uh, church um, quite recently, and I went with a good Anglican friend. And um, when they did the sort of chrism and anointing, even though they were doing it on a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old the priest still said and now I cast out all your sin and I thought well she's 13 you know there's probably a need for a bit more of you know your holy oil than than you've actually got because this is not an infant baptism afterwards my Anglican friend who comes from a very kind of low Anglican background rather than a high Anglican background said oh I didn't like that at all the idea it was a baby exorcism (laughs) and I think what I feel is that sometimes in our very modern way we're very quick to judge the rituals of the past and we don't know the extent to which there were rituals or truly held beliefs now there has been I didn't want to talk about this but I will there has been an awful lot of talk about the way sin was used to basically exploit children in the Catholic tradition. But I I still feel that, you know, there is something useful in the idea that we can do wrong. Mm. The word sin has become weaponised, especially against Catholics, because we now know that lots of the priests were sinning, (laughs) whilst, you know, parishioners were believing they were Mm. ordained God's representative. 
But I still think there is something important and we shouldn't shirk from talking about sin and we certainly shouldn't talk like less about good and evil. Because for me, there's too little of that in our modern world. There's too little of us genuinely talking about good and evil. Um, yeah, so sin is, sin is controversial, but I like the fact that you've just brought it up. I was kind of thinking, oh, I hope she doesn't ask me a question about sin. <laughs> I did think that as I was coming over. I think I even said that to my daughter, because um, I'll have to confess that I have sinned. <laughs> but, you know. I am not going to ask you any more about no, your sins, China. It's fine. I had a child out of wedlock, <laughs> you know. But uh, really, what I'm, I suppose I'm saying is that, you know, some of those traditional sins have ceased to be sins because life is dynamic and so is God. God has changed society and made it more liberal. So sins 100 years ago are not sins nowadays. Mm. But yeah, I think a lot of people in Britain think that all Christians go around accusing others of sin. Mm. And that's not actually what happens at church. Mm. Even in the Catholic Church, that isn't what happens. Mm. So what is your practice now? My practice is light and joyful and family orientated and empowering and we get up on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we don't. We stay in bed and we don't go and that is not a sin. <laughs> but me and my daughter attend a church called St Barnabas um, in Little Ilford. It's a very historic church because um, the architect Cooper Ellis was a doyen of high Anglican architecture. Um, so when East Ham and Manor Park were becoming sort of suburbs of London, it was very important because this was actually a non-conformist area. East Ham was dominated by Baptists and then Catholics, but not Anglicans because Anglicanism is middle class, yeah? Well, you know, these are received truths, it's not true. Um, but the Anglican Church were very keen to have a, a sort of feature church in this new vibrant place near the station, Manor Park, Little Ilford. So it's called St Barnabas, Little Ilford. I've been going there for about 10 years, on and off, and then when I split up with her father, it became a place of refuge. That's about six years ago. It became somewhere that I would go to probably three times a month as opposed to you know, four times a year, five times a year. So I became PCC member, Sunday school teacher, got more involved, and just really kind of started, you know, making it part of my liturgy that I go and I take communion, Eucharistic communion in the High Anglican way. And I do feel, if I have sinned, that's gonna get me through the next. I'm beginning week. to kind of regret ever mentioning the word <laughs> yeah. sin. Did I mention the word sin? No, you didn't. <laughs> it's playing on my mind for reasons that we will not delve into. But I do like communion. Okay. Yeah, because I know that not so all the Christians. Eucharist, yeah, Eucharist is important. To yeah, you. I do like. Mm. I do like mm. the Eucharistic service. And have you teased out why is it? Is it? Uh, is that also a sort of memory? thing from from your childhood no not particularly because I had a very ecumenical childhood in the sense that because my parents weren't practicing Christians mm. I went to brownies and girl guides which was actually you know run by Methodists mm. um, in Archway in North London um, I my mother taught in Catholic schools so I would do Catholic ritual through her because you know she taught in Catholic schools I teach in Catholic schools um, 
I think my thing about communion is I like the word to mm. commune. I like that it's something that we do together. What I like about the Anglican communion, and this is not to besmirch anybody else's practice, but the decision was taken in the 70s that any Christian is welcome. And we went to Greenbelt, me and my daughter, and we did something called an agape, which is Greek for a together, uh, a together, just, it, it means come. And we did it with Justin Welby, name drop. <laughs> and um, we sat in this big tent in Greenbelt with Muslims and Jews, because it's become a faith festival as much as a Christian festival. And Justin said, right, I'm not going to be your ordained uh, Eucharistic uh, priest, archbishop today. The children are doing it. And they have decided that you're going to drink cartons of cat grape juice. And we've got some pita breads for you. And the children came round as if it was like the Pied Piper of Hamlin with Justin who took his hat off and had only brought it so he could make a joke about having met the Pope and going, oh, I've got a bigger hat than you. And the Pope went, Pope Francis went, yeah, I think you have. The English have got this one. So he took it off and he just went round in his dog collar and jeans on a Sunday morning when everyone's been up listening to like Prince because Prince died that year, so they had a Prince party. Um, and the children came round with these bags of pita breads and K grape juice. And I literally, I don't know where it came from, I ended up bursting into tears as I sat there with my daughter, my friend, her children, a gay man, a Muslim man, a Jewish, you know, we were put into pods of 12. And I thought this is, to, this really is the meaning of the verb commune, to commune with one another. Um, and it, it feels like that's where Jesus would have been. And it, it takes me back to, you know, the Last Supper and... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't read the Bible very much, but I do like the Old Testament, and then I do like, you know, the Synoptic Gospels, and I do like Simon Peter and the, mm. you know, fishermen who join, and mm. just the kind mm. of idea that what we're doing is we're, we're reenacting something that really did happen, where a group of, a wild band of young men said, you know what, we are family, and we love each other, and this symbolises your body, my blood, you know when you're at school and boys used to cut themselves with pen knives and mingle their blood together? It's got, it, to me, it has, you know, features of that. And when I read the, when I read the New Testament, I see that love mm. in that book. Mm. And I feel that love in the communion that we do at St mm. Barnabas. Mm. I mean, communion's recognised as a sort of memorial, isn't it? A memorial mm. of the Last Supper. Um, so when we do it... It's a kind of memorial. It's a taking back to. It's. It, I mean, who doesn't enjoy a meal together? Yeah. It's. It's. It's something that people who are close do together. And because um, Saint Barnabas is very high Anglican, they've got all these traditions about doing the Passover supper on, you know, Maudie Thursday, where we commemorate the Jewish uh, mm. feast of Passover. Um, apples, honey, you know, that kind of thing. We'll do that kind of thing because we are high Anglican and we recognise that our faith is linked to... Well, I guess you could say it is linked to the Jewish faith. Mm, certainly, certainly. I mean, I was recently quite shocked to see how similar... It's called something like that, I can't remember the word, but the Shalat or something, which is the Jewish Lord's Prayer. 
the words are very similar to our Father who art in heaven, or you know, actually almost entirely the same words. So I, I think things like the Lord's Prayer, which every British child used to know, <laughs> things like communion, are a big part of my daughter's British identity. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about interfaith? Yeah. Because you've mentioned people of different faiths several times. Yeah. So I'm really, and I'm also, I also know that you did a, you celebrated World Hijab Day with some of your uh, women, Muslim women yeah. friends. Um, so I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about, about your relationship yeah. with other world faiths, because clearly, I mean, you yeah. live in diverse Newham. Yeah. Oh, and it's just such an interesting place to live, isn't mm. it? We both mm. have that in common, and that's how we met. Um, so my route into doing that was through an organisation called Newham Stand Up to Racism, which is a national organisation that campaigns um, against Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and just tries to put you know anti-racist views across. And it's a broad church of people, pretty much I would say on the left, but you know we do have Liberal Democrats, and it's meant to be a non-political organisation. Um, involved in that is a young woman called Sabia Kamali, who set up a organisation for Muslim women in East London called the um, Sisterhood and now it's Sisters Empowerment. It's become a registered charity, I think. But what they do is they are the East London organisers for World Hijab Day. Um, and so the idea is that all around the world there's one day and it was the... First uh, of February, quite memorable. There's one day when people all around the world can learn about the hijab, and in particular, some of the stereotypes and taboos can be broken down for non Muslims. Um, so I wore the hijab for a whole day, for 24 hours, had thought about wearing it for the whole weekend that became quite exhausting. I was able to do it only because I wasn't at work, because in a Catholic school, I don't think they would have actually allowed me to do it or film myself. Um, it was a revelation wearing the hijab. It was really, really eye-opening. Yeah. In what way? Well, I mean, first of all, let me just say that it was not, you know, it was not a very restrictive hijab. You know, because people get confused between a niqab and, you know, other... I wouldn't even call it the veil, yeah? Because people talk about, oh, you know, they veil, they cover up their women. Actually, this, the hijab as I wore it, you're just covering your hair. Mm -hmm. And here's something that I have always known, but I found it quite interesting that other people don't know this. Until quite recently, respectable women in European culture did not have long hair trailing down their back, you know? And actually, removing that felt very good as a Christian woman. And it then made me start to think about all the Christian communities that do still have some kind of orthodoxy around dress, around hair, and most of all, is what Sabi kept saying, around modesty. So I felt very, very different and I felt very kind of vulnerable, but I felt very at one with my 
values and what I realized is that actually wearing the hijab for someone of faith doesn't feel that odd because you do things as a Christian every day that are different from the mainstream. As a Christian, there's always a bedrock of, you know, how would, how would, how would Jesus feel about this? You know, how would this fly, you know, back in Nazareth? And actually, not even that, but am I representing myself, my values, my faith, my politics appropriately with this behaviour? And dress is just another form of behaviour, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It is. So, did you, did you use the word vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what was it that made you feel vulnerable? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I said to Sabia that one of the interesting things is that I think really, because I'm very light-skinned, most of the time I present as white. Mm. Although I am mixed race, I'm not white, and I know inside I'm not, I think I pass as white. Right. And so as soon as I put on something that is so obviously not associated with white people and Europeans, I become an ethnic minority. Now, for me, that's really interesting, because my mum is black, even my sister is black because she's a slightly different skin tone from me, but generally people don't treat me as if I'm black. Mm. And by black I mean black, Asian, you know, mm. Bamer as they call it now. Um, so that, that, that made me feel like, oh gosh, I've been masquerading all this time as a white woman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which of course I don't, but you know, it's like I didn't realise how much my looks are acceptable and mainstream and ordinary and nothing that unusual until I put them in a headscarf and suddenly I'm an Arab, you know? Mm. I'm not Italian, I'm, you know, <laughs> Syrian. Mm -hmm. And that's got different connotations, even though an Italian and a Syrian actually physically don't have different skin tone, they occupy a different space in the collective mindset of mm. our Romano Christian country. Yeah. So were things actually said to oh, you, yeah, or yeah, was yeah, this yeah, just yeah, yeah. was no, this no, a no, sense no. of? No, things were said to me. Yeah, right. things were said to me, um, especially on Facebook. I got some really negative comments Gosh. from middle-aged white men that I didn't realise were as anti-Islam as it's now transpired they are. I mean, interestingly, you know, you said you saw that post that you thought, oh, this is great about Candlemas. I had put up on Thurs on Friday, me in a hijab, and then on Sunday, which is the 2nd of February, Candlemas. If you don't know what Candlemas is, it's sort of the end of Christmas, in a way. Well, that's Epiphany, but yeah, in the Orthodox Church, the Byzantine Church. Um, and one man just wrote a massive long diatribe about, you're so confused, you need, to, you need to decide whether you're a Christian. You put on faiths like you put on clothes. What is wrong with you? You're so mixed up. And I just thought, I could actually explain to him that I have not converted to Islam, but why would I do that? Because I quite like the joke. I'm bumping to him in the street with a great big cross on with some rosary beads and confirm his view that all religious people are basically nutters. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so what, yeah. What, what is going on there? Because for Ooh, him, it feels like he wants a very defined, he wants to know that you're Christian, yeah. this person's Muslim, this person is something else. Mm -hmm. um, whereas for you, there is more fluidity between the faiths? Is that, is that, or you have more Ooh. openness to people yeah. of other faiths? What? Yeah, I mean, I bumped into my friend Funda, who is a Turkish Cypriot Muslim. So she doesn't veil. It's not part of their culture to veil, but she is Muslim. And she just carried on talking to me as if, you know, 
there was nothing unusual about me. Uh, to the extent that I had to say, Funda, hello, hello, have you not noticed? She went, yeah, but I just thought you converted. <laughs> now, how is, blah, 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 blah. like it was not important to her whatsoever. And actually, I, I think that's quite interesting because I love Cyprus. I love those kinds of places where, um, when I went to Yugoslavia, I went to Bosnia, it was the same. Oh God, but look what happened there. Um, and some place in the Middle East have this, and Malaysia has it as well. And actually, we have it in England. I love those kinds of places where you can go and you'll see, you know, a Haredi Jew, and then you'll see a girl in a pair of, you know, hot pants, and then you'll see a Nigerian in African dress on their way to church. Like, this is, this is, this is really God's work when you see all those people together. One of the theological things that I always ask people when they are very clear that, you know, one faith is better than the other is, if so, why did God make different faiths? And it goes back to the Bible story, the Tower of Babel, mm. yeah? Mm -hmm. That we were separated like that because we sinned. But actually, the Tower of Babel also has a little, little, little line in it, I can't recall it, but it says something about, you know, we can come back together if we aren't arrogant. Mm. Because it was the arrogance mm -hmm. that caused us to start speaking in different languages because mm. we were trying to talk above God. Mm. So God said, I'm not going to listen to you until you humble yourself and you realise that there is one universal higher power. Um, and I love that Bible story. Um, I've got a few of my favourites that I do draw on sometimes, but theologically I use that one to explain to people who are, oh, what would you call them, fundamentalists? Mm. Religious fundamentalists? Mm. I was actually having a conversation yesterday with yeah. somebody and he was he he was actually he described the different faith paths as being like different languages oh right yeah. so we are all we you know we t we might speak different languages yeah. but as you say uh -huh. um oh, under great. the higher power of of one yeah god i notice you don't use the word god i don't do i i don't use it doesn't trip off my tongue very readily and i suppose that's a generational thing because i think in my generation it is still quite i think it's unusual yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not inundated with people who want to talk to me about being a Christian. It's not mm. something that I think, you know, most mm. people born in the late 70s. Mm. Mm. Um, and I know that a lot of a lot of the kind of work you do outside your paid job mm. is with the Labour Party. Yeah, You're and a there's Labour very Party activist. Yeah, I'm a Labour Party activist. There's very little talk of Christianity and God in politics. Don't you think? You know, we have a, a vicar's daughter as our Prime Minister. But somehow that's kind of a vote loser rather than a vote winner. And um, when Tony Blair uh, came out of office, one of the first things he actually did was he actually did go and do his catechism and convert to Catholicism. Because whilst he was Prime Minister that would have been not only a vote loser but it actually would have been a bit constitutionally iffy because Catholics aren't allowed to be you know that's incredible <laughs> isn't it Catholics aren't actually allowed to be married into the royal family so can they be? Can we have a Catholic Prime Minister mm -hmm. um, mm. I think politics in this country at the moment needs a massive dose of religion Okay, so for you yourself personally, mm. does does your um, is your activism in the Labour Party inspired by yeah. your faith? It's my way of, of spreading the gospel. 
to be honest. Um, I mean, there are Christian groupings in the Labour Party. There's Christians on the left. There's a long tradition in England of Christian socialism, which arguably is much more relevant and indigenous and uh, appropriate to our local conditions than Marxism. You know, I went to university, I studied Marx. There are people now in the Labour Party who are Marxists and they, like my father, believe in a kind of scientific approach to social change. I, I have an approach that blends my belief in witness, in fellowship, in the Gospels, with a nod to some scientific socialism as well. Okay. So when you talk about when you say it's my way of spreading the gospel, hmm. what 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 what's what is the gospel to you? The gospel to me is the universal I will talk about God, is the universal struggle against evil. And the Bible for me is an amazing resource which has several gospels, i.e. lessons on how to deal with a range of social issues. And let's not forget, you know, I actually teach A-level politics and we talk about interest groups and pressure groups. And one category of pressure group is what's called a social movement. Now, Christianity is a social movement, like Black Lives Matter is a social movement, like Votes for Women was a social movement. But it's a social movement that has lasted for nearly 2,500 years. It was a messianic cult cult but it was a messianic movement to say we believe we can bring God's work to this earth we can do good on earth by not following the Pharisees and the rabbis but by asking ordinary people you know Simon Peter ordinary fishermen have the key to social justice and to social witness and to saying that is evil, this is good. And for me, Jesus, I mean, I don't want to offend people, but for me, Jesus is a socialist before socialism even existed, in that he was a great socialiser with a great social message, and he started a profoundly important social movement, which I have been brought up in. Hello. My daughter's just kind of coming into... So what does being a Christian mean? How does mummy, how does mummy do good things? Good God things. How do I do God uh, things? Well, you like you're not like selfish, like in what you have, but like, uh, and like you do good things. So, and like you're always involved, and you're not scared to show um, to do to um, give your opinions, because like God, He wasn't scared to like be. Um, like on the cross and like I don't think you would be scared I think you would be scared but I feel like you yeah. would be like I don't want to do it but if I have to I have to I love that you know that God is Jesus Christ as well mm. <laughs> that's the trinity isn't you're it? fine oh no can't speak to me now yeah I mean you know she she just you know out of the <laughs> mouth of babes it's about doing good things so like we love talking to homeless people don't we tell Anne about what you did for the homeless people at Christmas um at Christmas we made like little homeless boxes and like we went out and we gave them to homeless people and like 
and it was like around Christmas, so they had it for Christmas, like a Christmas present. Mm. So we did that, yeah. So what was in the boxes? Um, there was like um, wash, like um, sanitary. Is that the word? Yeah. Yeah, stuff and like um, there was like food in there and like water. Yeah, so that was in there. But one of the most important things you put in there that you insisted on having was you insisted on having a Christmas card with a little Yeah, bit of yeah, we in. put Christmas cards in and like it had like a message in it. So yeah, that was one of the things. So are you at school in Newham, Nisner? No, I go to school up in Holloway. Up in Holloway, okay. Yeah. But you're living and, and Holloway's a very diverse area mm. as well. Yeah. So I've heard from your mum what a kind of rich background of faith that you've been born into. But also you're at school in surrounded by such a richness of different faiths. What does uh, how would you how would you describe yourself? Um Within the within all these different faiths and different mix. Yeah, sort of. But like when it comes to other religions, I'm just like most of my friends here are like Muslims. Like I've got my best friends are Muslims, and I don't really care because like they're still they're still my friends, and like I might have a Christian friend or like a Muslim friend, but they're still my friends, so I don't really mind what what religion they are they're still a person and this is what we were discussing in school like does it matter if you're like different like or a different religion or a different skin color you're still people and we were like discussing this in school because we were reading a poem about stuff like this and like we got into a really deep conversation about different people and like differences of religions but i really don't care what religion they are does it make a difference does it make any difference? No, not really, not to me. It's like, one difference it makes is that I'm, it's diverse. So, like, they could be talking about when they went to the, I don't know, their religious place, and I'll be like, uh -huh, and I'll be listening. And, I, and then we would get into a conversation about the church, what we do there, and then they'll, they'll start a conversation about what they do where they where they go at a mosque and it's like it's it's a bit weird because I can't really talk about like a mosque because I've never really been to one mm. but um yeah it's just nice knowing about stuff like this so so the difference is around their experience you have got different experiences that you can share yeah. but actually fundamentally you're all people is that yeah. what you said and you just you can just be friends. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you both, <laughs> Neisner and Shona, for coming along and having a conversation. Oh, it's, it's been, been so a much really fun. rich conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so it's touched on things that I didn't think we were gonna to touch on and you know, I mean I do feel like always when you do things like this can I say this? This is a bit wacky. I'm sounding like a hippie. There's such a higher power feeling in this room. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, like you, and a lot of people talk about that. Places have vibes. This mm. has a very spiritual mm. vibe. Mm. And you do feel in places like the Urban Yurt, if you need time for the spirit, 
to find you and you need to find your own spirit and you need to find a connect with the earth's spirit doesn't it feel like the earth's spirit connects in this room it all comes together like this mm-hmm. in east ham the center of our universe well, you've, you've come along today and you've contributed to the spirit of the place. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's what happens in, in places like this, when you have music or prayer or meditation and gorgeous conversation. <laughs> but the walls <laughs> absorb it. Yeah. So, that's thank you nice. for being part Namaste. of that. <laughs> Namaste. Well, thank you, Shona. What a lovely conversation and lovely words at the end there talking about uh, our spiritual space that is the urban yurt. And look forward to Shona coming back into the yurt on Saturday, actually, for a Labour Party. Women uh, women in the Labour Party are going to have an event to celebrate International Women's Day. Also this weekend, Ian Mole, who... Um, we did a, po- a podcast with Ian a couple of weeks ago. He's going to be in the yurt on Friday night, March the 15th, um, telling the universe story, so a storytelling event on Friday. So do check out my website or the Mosaic Facebook page to find out more about those events. So you'll be so welcome. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. And, uh, yeah, do subscribe to the podcast if you would like to hear future future episodes. It would be so good to have you with us. Thank you. Bye for now.